This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Christopher Lockhead, co-author of the book Play Bigger During My Stay in Silicon Valley. We discuss the concept of category kings and why the modern tech companies need to embrace category design to play bigger. Last but not least, we discuss the examples of category kings in Asia. Hi, Chris. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. It's very early morning and Chris, thanks so much for taking on this interview. Oh, it's really my pleasure, Bernard. Thank you for having me. And I'm speaking to Christopher Lockhead, the current author of a book called Play Bigger. And if you haven't read this book, you should, because I've actually got to know of this book through one of the Stanford E-Corner Entrepreneur Leader Series, I think where your fellow authors have spoken. Yes, that's right. Yes. So I want to start off before we get into the book Play Bigger, because it was also recommended by one of my listeners, Bob O'Brien. So I'm actually going to give a shout out to him. Yeah. So, Chris, I wanted to start off by asking you, how do you get started in your career? (laughs) Uh, Well, Bernard, I think my career is maybe a little bit different than some. I failed out of school when I was 18 years old for having poor grades. A good friend of mine, Jack, wanted to start a company. It was in the late 1980s at the dawn of the personal computer. With no contacts, no education, no relationship, and no money, Jack and I started a, a company uh, doing computer training and consulting when I was about 18 years old. And then subsequently, you went to work for a company called Mercury that was acquired by HP, right? That was uh, about 15 years later. But yes, that's absolutely right. I ultimately ended up, I started my business life or started my life in Montreal, Canada. And by the time Mercury came around in the, in the mid-2000s, I had been living in Silicon Valley for a while. I came here to California about 20 years ago. Ultimately ended up joining a, a company who was a client of mine called Mercury Interactive. We had a very successful run at Mercury in the enterprise software space. And ultimately, Hewlett Packard ended up acquiring us for about $5 billion. My question is, after that, you also work in a couple of startups. Can you talk a little bit about some of the interesting career lessons in your journey? Yeah. So doing startups is a very cool and hip thing today, which I think is in general a good thing, Bernard. But I think that, so for me as an entrepreneur, somebody who started his career with with really nothing, entrepreneurship was really a way out or a way up, if you will, a way for a better life. And so probably at a high level, the biggest thing that I've learned is that if you're willing to be an entrepreneur, if you're willing to take risks, if you're willing to try to build things, you know, your status in life doesn't necessarily matter. It's about what you can achieve. I want to get to the main topic of today. The title of your book is called Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. It's actually published by HarperCollins. Actually, you have fellow authors of El Ramadan, Dave Peterson and Kevin Maney. And this is actually a four authors written book. So I wanted to ask my first question, how did the book project came about? And why is the book titled Play Bigger? Great questions. Thank you. So my three business partners, Al Ramadan, or there's three of us, uh, myself, Al Ramadan, and Dave Peterson, for several years, we had friends and colleagues suggesting we should write a book. And uh, most notably, uh, a woman named Peggy Burke, who runs 1185 Design. She's considered to be the top branding design agency in the technology field here in Silicon Valley. So her, amongst many others, encouraged us for quite a while. We weren't really sure, Bernard. It wasn't something we had necessarily sought out to do. And so my partner, Al, 
had a good relationship with Kevin Maney for many years. And Kevin's one of the top writers in the technology field. He's written six or seven best-selling books, and he's currently the technology commentator for Newsweek magazine, a genius of a guy. So we met with Kevin at Peggy's uh, urging. He said to us, guys, you have a new lens on business, and we should give that lens to the world. And so as a result of that, we decided, okay, let's see if we can actually write a book. And we were incredibly fortunate, Bernard, that Jim Levine was our agent. He's Jeffrey Moore's agent. Jeffrey wrote uh, Crossing the Chasm. Hollis Heimbush at at HarperCollins has just been an amazing partner for us. She's Jack Welsh has published many others. And so we were we were really lucky to find Kevin and then to surround ourselves with experts in book publishing to help us uh, help us on this journey. And so why is the book titled Play Bigger? Well, this is really the function of our work and therefore became the thesis or the premise of our book is that if you start to study legendary innovators and entrepreneurs over time and you say, well, what is it they did differently? Because if you look at it, of course, the statistics around innovation success are fairly low. And we think that it's all of our jobs to say, okay, well, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to be an innovator, for those of us in the technology industry, how do we improve our odds? How do we increase our odds? So we said, what is it the legendary entrepreneurs do that's different? And at a high level, we discovered the following. What most innovators do, Bernard, is they go to work on something they think is really cool, really important. And they try to build what they hope is a legendary product or service. And then they build a company to deliver that product or service or technology. And then they launch that product and that company into the world and they go, ta-da! And in general, what they talk about, what they market are the features and what they think are the benefits of that. And they hope the world figures out why that innovation is important and most importantly, why it's different. So at a high level, they work on two things, product and company. What we discovered is the most legendary entrepreneurs do three things. They purposely build a product, company, and a category. They intentionally create a new market space, which they can be the designer of, define in the world, and ultimately dominate those markets. And so the reason for the name of the book is legendary innovators do play a bigger game. And then for the subtitle, You know, what we noticed is that most of the legends are real creators and they have a swagger to them. And so that's kind of where the pirate thing comes from. Some of them, of course, have very big dreams to make a difference in the world. And some of them are very focused on innovation and technology. And some of them are a mix of all three. And so that's how you get to pirate streamers and innovators. And what we noticed is that the legendary companies today aren't the ones that just compete in existing markets. They choose to create and dominate their own and and become what you could think of as category kings. And so what the book's really about is what's the approach that the greatest category kings have used to play bigger? And that approach is this new discipline in Silicon Valley called category design. And so the book is really about how you can use category design to become one of the great category kings of all time. And that's actually the main thesis of the book, from what I understand from you. Yes, yes, very much so. In your discussion on what makes a great company, you talk about the triangulation of three areas that shape a category king, product design, company design, and category design. How do you and your fellow authors define these three areas and how do they lead to becoming a category king then? It's a great question, Bernard. Most entrepreneurs or innovators start with the product design and the product design generally is predicated on some kind of an idea or an insight 
And that idea or insight is normally based on seeing a problem. Once an entrepreneur identifies a problem, they begin to go to work on designing, if you will, a solution. And that that problem can be, uh, you know, anything. One of my favorite examples, I live in Santa Cruz, California, and I'm a few blocks away from where Jack O'Neill lives. And Jack is the inventor of the surfing wetsuit. And one of his most famous quotes is, I'm just a surfer who wanted to surf longer. So classic entrepreneur sees a problem. The water in Northern California is cold. I want to surf. And so he goes to work working on rubber in his garage and ultimately invents the wetsuit. And so entrepreneurs start off by identifying a problem. They have an insight around how to solve that problem. And they go to work and they build that product or technology. And then when it comes time to bring that product or technology to the world, that's where they have to design a company and or a business model. And most entrepreneurs stop there. They hope when they say, ta-da, that the world will intuitively understand why their innovation is different and why it is distinct and stands out, and most importantly, what problem it solves. What we notice, Bernard, is that the legendary entrepreneurs don't leave that up to chance. So every great product or service that we love exists because a legendary innovator built a product, a company, and a category at the same time. So, for example, Clarence Birdseye, who's the category designer of the frozen food category, he had an insight when he was fishing in northern Canada. He saw that when the fish came out of the water, if you put it immediately on the ice, it would freeze. And that was the insight. And he thought, well, if we could apply that to fish, to other kinds of food, we might be able to solve a problem called how do you have fresh vegetables in winter? And Clarence went to work on not just solving the problem, which ultimately he did. He created this new category of food called frozen food, as distinct from fresh food and at the time canned food. This was back in the 1920s. But he also, when he put his new product into the world, he didn't just say, ta-da, here's frozen food. He said things like, wouldn't it be great to have fresh vegetables in February? And so he started to teach the world by framing a problem, in this case, a problem that the world didn't know it had, I need fresh vegetables in winter. And once the world saw things the way he did, all of a sudden, all of us wanted frozen food and a whole new aisle in the grocery store got born. And that is exactly what happens time and time again with new category design. So how does one actually incorporate this category design when they're building and scaling their companies? Awesome question. The thing to realize today is that in most spaces, we're playing a winner-take-all game. And so for our book, Play Bigger, we researched every venture capital-backed technology startup found in America from 2000 through to the end of 2015. One of the questions we asked is, what percentage of the value in the entire category goes to the leader? And specifically, we looked at what percentage of market cap total value creation goes to the company that ultimately wins the category king and what we discovered is that one company in the tech industry on average gets 76 percent of the market cap of the space and if you start to take a step back you say wait a minute isn't that interesting there's an interesting pattern particularly in the technology industry where one company wins over and over and over again so for example facebook has essentially no competitor in social networking. LinkedIn just got acquired by Microsoft because it's the category king in 
professional social networking. VMware is the is the leader in virtualization technology. Google has over 70% market share in the search business in spite of Microsoft spending over $10 billion on Bing, et cetera, et cetera. And so what, what you see in the technology industry, and you see it in other industries too, is that more and more we're playing a winner-take-all game. And so to get back to your question, Bernard, what category design is ultimately about is aligning all of the resources of your company to build the right product, company, and category at the same time. And it's the company that teaches the world to think about its problems and solutions in the way that it wants them to that ultimately carves out a new place. So for example, in the old days, you have to drive to a video store to rent a video and you paid late fees if your video wasn't returned on time. And sometimes they had the video you wanted and sometimes they didn't. And then all of a sudden a company called Netflix comes along and teaches us that we can solve the problem called how do I get videos at my house in a completely different way originally by subscribing to DVDs on the internet, delivered through the post, and of course today it's delivered on the internet itself. And all of a sudden, as Netflix conditions you and I to instead of drive to a video store, go to a website, the video stores go bankrupt and the website becomes the future. And in so doing, that new category called movie subscription service overtakes the old category. But Netflix didn't compete with traditional video stores in the traditional way. They carved out a new niche. They created and designed a new category. And it turns out that's what legendary innovators do. One thing I do like about reading the book is also you created a playbook in explaining category design. And I want to get into the different steps along the way. So the first step I probably wanted to ask is how does one discover the category? So one of the things we like to say, which is the corollary to this, Bernard, is there are too many solutions without a problem. Most entrepreneurs and innovators are so excited about their product, their technology, their solution. That's what they want to talk about. And so the answer to your question, how do you discover a category is first, what's the problem? And what we know is that new categories get created when new problems get identified. So bird's eye in the case of frozen foods. In that case, it's a problem that you and I didn't even know we had. And in the case of, for example, Steve Jobs with the iPhone, smartphones existed at the time, although they were not called smartphones back then, they were called wireless phones. And the leader in wireless phones at the time was a company called RIM, or Research in Motion, with a product called BlackBerry. And in the case of the iPhone, Steve Jobs reimagined the problem. RIM thought about it from the concept of from the communications. How do I send emails effectively? Jobs had a much bigger vision for creating a content consumption and communication device that ultimately reimagined what a, at the time, wireless phone was so that today we have a smartphone and RIM is barely in business. And so in either case, identifying a problem we didn't know we had, frozen food, or identifying a problem we knew we had, wireless phone, but reimagining that problem in a completely unique way. Therefore, the solution redefines the category. Regardless of how you do it, the way you discover a category is to think about either a problem that people didn't know they had, or a problem they do know they have, but in a completely different way. So how does one put forward a strategy to dominate the category? Is it conscious or not conscious then? 
Well, what we know is the legendary innovators and entrepreneurs over time intuitively understood that when you're bringing something truly different, truly innovative to the market, as we like to say, the more innovation, the more innovation, the, the more education is required. So the more innovation, the more education. And so the legendary entrepreneurs do not leave the category up to chance. When Henry Ford introduced the automobile, he didn't call it the automobile. He wanted to make sure people could relate to it and understand what the automobile was in their current context. And so he called it the horseless carriage. And he framed a whole new personal transportation paradigm away from the horse. And in so doing, he taught the world to think about personal transportation in a completely different way. And so the bigger the innovation, the more the market education is required. How does one mobilize people that moves the company towards that category? Well, probably the most important thing is to educate your whole company on category design, letting them understand that it's about getting product, company, and category right at the right moment in time. And that's how you get a Facebook or a Salesforce.com. The second thing is legendary companies who use category design as kind of, if you will, a secret black art to create the, the market they want. One of the principal tools that they use to communicate their new category strategy is something called a point of view. And so uh, many of the great companies, they don't just market their products or features. They are governed by something greater. They center themselves on solving a problem. They evangelize that problem because the legendary entrepreneurs intuitively have always understood if the world sees the problem the way I do, they're going to demand the solution that I created. And so legendary entrepreneurs evangelize a problem with a provocative and engaging point of view. Mark Benioff, famously the founder of Salesforce.com, who almost single-handedly has created the new paradigm in computing today called cloud computing, for the better part of 20 years, has evangelized a point of view he calls no software, which is to mean we don't run software on our computers, we don't run them in our data centers, we use our technology through this magical thing called the cloud, and it delivers our applications and our data when we need them. Well, 20 years ago, that was an outrageous idea. And for a software company to say no software, even more outrageous. And he has used that point of view centered around the problem of having data and applications running locally to create a multi-billion dollar computing industry. And so what mobilizes people, particularly in the beginning, is a powerful point of view. And people get drawn towards a mission to solve that problem. And then the way you run your company is actually governed from that point of view. So if I say to you, hey, Bernard, you, you've done a lot of traveling. There's some news today about uh, United Airlines in the press I saw and some computer problems they're having. If I say to you, Singapore Airlines, United Airlines, which company has a point of view, which one doesn't? You immediately know, don't you? Yep. And so what we know is legendary companies, particularly ones that are committed to carving out a unique and different place in the market for themselves, govern themselves around a very unique point of view. And all you have to do is walk on to a Singapore Airlines plane and walk on to United Airlines plane and know that one company is governed by something much bigger than spreadsheets and one company couldn't care less. Does it mean that you have to figure out a way to condition the market to welcome the company as a category leader? Yes, very powerful said, if the world accepts your problem, they're going to demand your solution. And so legendary category designers who want to become category kings teach the world to think that way. 
when Jobs introduces the iPad, he doesn't leave the category to chance. He explains to people why, and I'm going to use this word on purpose, it's different than a laptop or a smartphone. So Bill Gates in 2001 launches the tablet PC and he does what most entrepreneurs do, which is he talks about the features of the product. And of course it never takes off. In 2009, Jobs stands up and he puts up a slide and on one side of it, he's got a picture of a MacBook and on the other side of it, he's got a picture of the iPhone. And he says, we believe there is room for a new category of device. Now let me tell you why. And he begins to frame a new problem. And that problem is around how easy it is to both A, consume content over the internet and B, communicate. And he said, we think there's room for a new category of device that is a magical device that solves that problem. And when you and I accepted his point of view around how a tablet can be used distinctively from a laptop and a smartphone, bang a multi-billion dollar category gets created almost overnight. Throughout the book, I know all the four authors have actually taken a lot of examples of companies in how they established themselves to become the category kings. Would you want to share some examples? <laughs> sure. You know, there's so many fun ones. And, and once you develop the category lens, if you will, you, you, you can't unsee it. And so uh, one of my current favorites is an entrepreneur named Sarah Blakely. She's getting dressed one day and she realizes that she doesn't like the way she looks with certain tight fitting clothes on. And she doesn't have the right underwear to make herself happy in terms of how she wants to look in these clothes. And so she does what every entrepreneur then does, which is she says, I want to go solve this problem. So she has the problem herself and she wants to go solve it. And she does. And here's the genius thing she creates. When she ultimately creates the product that she calls Spanx, she doesn't say this is a girdle 2.0. She says this is a new kind of underwear and she calls it shapewear. And everything about shapewear is different from underwear or lingerie or girdles or what have you. Her packaging is different. The way that, that her product looks is completely different. And most importantly, she evangelizes it to a, a different audience. And all of a sudden, a whole new category of undergarment shows up called shapewear. Another example we can all relate to is Facebook. In the technology industry, 20 years ago, everybody thought that the way you were going to win was you wanted to be what was called first to market. There was this thing called time to market. The, the fastest company to get to a new market was the one who won. Well, in the social networking space, as you may know, there were lots of companies in the social networking space. So Facebook was actually not first. It was actually fairly late. But here's what was different. Mark Zuckerberg explained in his now famous Time Magazine interview that he wanted to do something different. He wanted a digital way to recreate the trusted relationships we have in the real world. And that's ultimately what he did. He had a point of view that wasn't just about collecting friends and slapping stuff up on you know, a page. If you remember, for example, MySpace was a mess at the time. He wanted to create something much more personal where and much more uh, connected that mimicked what happened in the real world digitally. And he was the first to evangelize that point of view and get Bernard, if you will, the magic triangle, right? Product, company, and category. And so whether it's, you know, shapewear as an undergarment, new category, or social networking as a completely reimagined way for human beings to communicate and collaborate online, in either case, both of these entrepreneurs did what legendary entrepreneurs do, which is they got product, 
company and category, right? And now, most importantly, A, their categories have taken off. They've become big new markets. And B, those entrepreneurs are the entrepreneurs that have reaped the, the massive rewards for doing so. Given that Mark Andreessen says software is eating the world, how does a traditional company, and if it is a category king in the past, fence a itself against a technology company moving into the same category from an asymmetrical and innovative point of view. I, I can think of examples like Uber for transportation yes. and Airbnb for hospitality. Yes, uh, great examples. And so we would agree with Mark, software is eating the world. I just saw a story online today about how many wearable technologies are used by athletes this year at the Rio Games. You know, so we know that technology is everywhere. If you've purchased or been in a modern automobile, not even necessarily a, a, an electric one, but a, a one by a, a made by a normal manufacturer, if you will. Today, automobiles are essentially data centers with wheels. And so we know software is eating the world. And so what that means is every industry is a technology industry. To your point on Airbnb and Uber, I don't know if the taxi industry thought it was a technology industry, but I bet you it does today. And certainly the hospitality industry knows it's a technology industry. And so as the possibility of the Internet morphs and expands over time, the category potential, if you will, for new problems to get solved in ways that we never imagined or existing problems to be thought of in completely different ways that allow for new categories to emerge, those things are only accelerating. And so more new startups and more new innovation can be brought to market more quickly. How would this traditional company fend itself then? Do they have to actually redo the, their corporate structure to defend against this kind of companies that embraces category design as part of its culture? I don't know that we're necessarily experts in company organization, so to speak, but here, here's what we do know for, for a fact. Companies get drunk on alcohol that flows from existing markets. And in some cases, that's what there is for them to do. So if I'm Microsoft and I'm the category king with Microsoft Office, and I've been the category king with Microsoft Office for over 20 years, what there is to do is to continue to milk that category. It's incredibly profitable. They invented the category of office productivity suite over 20 years ago, and they've been reaping the rewards ever since then. It's one of the greatest entrepreneurial achievements in technology history. That's exactly what they should do. However, the question becomes, well, how do I find the next great category? And categories exist in what some people, uh, what you could think of as a $0 billion market. That is to say, if the category exists today, then it's probably too late to become the king. And so category kings create new things. And so the way to think about becoming a category king is what problems are you thinking about solving that if you solve those problems perfectly with a legendary new product or technology would ultimately end up creating a massive new market. That's the companies that have been incredibly successful. In our book, Play Bigger, we talk about Corning, for example, who's been innovating and designing new categories for 150 years. And they look for that magical, uh, magical integration of product, company, and category at the same time. Another company that we love that does this, that's been doing an amazing job of it of late is Amazon. Of course, the company is, is the principal category designer of e-commerce and then becomes the principal category designer and category king in e-readers with the Kindle. 
And of course, today with Amazon Web Services, AWS has created a multi-billion dollar cloud enterprise technology hosting business. And so Amazon has turned itself into a category design expert and as a result has multiple category king businesses. And so it's really, Bernard, not a function of how big the company is or even how innovative it is from a product or technology point of view. It's can it get all things, all three things right? Company, product, and technology aligned with uh, designing a new category. And if they can get those things right, then they become category kings. The category leaders today are going to be the dinosaurs of tomorrow. So I think you mentioned Amazon as a very good example of having that continuous process of reinventing themselves as category kings. What kind of advice would you give for companies to stay nimble then in order to shift and change as a new category turns out? Based on everything we know, what makes a company be nimble is the way it thinks about problems. It's almost impossible for somebody who's running a big existing business that is already successful, that's already a category king, to reimagine that whole category. It almost always takes an outsider's point of view. And so what we see happening is the companies that want to create multiple category king businesses over time separate the parts of their business that are, if you will, milking existing categories versus creating new ones. A company that's on the bleeding edge of this right now is Google. As you know, Bernard, about a year ago, they broke the company up into a holding company and a series of operating companies. The holding company's name is Alphabet. And so essentially what they appear to have done is taken their core business, the Google search business, and separated it from, if you will, all of the experiments and kind of innovative things they're trying to do so that the, the new stuff doesn't distract the old stuff and vice versa for that matter. And so... It's very rarely the people who are milking an existing category that can reimagine it going forward. And by creating some separation, you increase the likelihood of that. So since this podcast is about Asia, have you seen any examples of category kings then? Well, of course, there's category kings all over the world. Alibaba is probably a a really great example uh, in the technology world. Of course, SoftBank is an incredible example. Of course, uh, Samsung is another one. Tata Industries is is an extraordinary category designer and, and has multiple category king positions in the technology services industry as well. People like Infosys in, in outsourcing and, and many others. And so the category king phenomena, that is the ability to design product company and category is certainly not region specific. It's something ultimately that you have to get right if you want to build a new category king company, regardless of what part of the world you're in. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show to explain about what category design, being a category king is about. So my final question to you, how do my audience find you? Uh, well, we're uh, hopefully very easy to find. Most major book retailers have the book, uh, Play Bigger. We have distribution all throughout Asia. And if the book isn't available in your native language yet, it more than likely will be soon. And then you find us online, playbigger.com, on Twitter, at playbigger. My personal handle on Twitter is at Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D. And uh, you can also find us, Play Bigger on LinkedIn, and uh, Christopher Lockhead, Dave Peterson, Al Ramadan, and Kevin Maney. We're all on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter as well. 
And you can find me at bleungcwbernardleung.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and now Google Play. And of course, you can drop me a feedback and also give me suggestions for guests, like how we did this podcast today. And of course, currently I'm in the Singularity University, so episodes will be slightly slower. But once September comes back, we are back into the regular schedule again. So once again, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I look forward to speak to you again sometime in the future. Thank you. It's my pleasure and play bigger.